Shy boy smarty pants Kenji Koiso jumps at the chance to spend his summer break with the girl of his dreams, but gets much more than he bargained for when her big honkin' family drama collides with whiz-bang futuristic action thrills in director Hosoda Mamoru's whiplash-inducing coming-of-age story, Summer Wars. Are you ready to go? The kingdom. Welcome everyone, this is Okashina Podcast Anime with Friends. We are the anime, you are the friends. Wait, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't feel like the anime. Not, not today, but uh, we can we can work with that framework. I am Sabrina Ray, with me is Dawn, and we're here to talk about the film Summer Wars. Pretty exciting. We haven't done a film before, so this is brand new territory. This is sort of our intermission between Series 2, Sarazan Mai, and Series 3, which we just announced is going to be Keep Your Hands Off, Azoken or Film Club, depending on whether you translate. I guess Azoken is more memorable than saying Film Club, so that's why they do it that way. But the Japanese title is Azoken uh, ni which means exactly what the English title is. Um, and I'm, I'm, we're excited to get into that, but we I, we haven't officially started that. So right now we're going to talk about Summer Wars. But first, Dawn, we've sort of been on break for a bit. What have you been doing with your... How did you spend your summer vacation? How did I spend my summer vacation? Well, in truth, uh, I went to Michigan a couple of times, um, spent some time with some friends out there, rented some houses along the beach, uh, kind of, Ooh. it's, consider it the Midwestern Riviera. I never really thought of, like, the beach, like, Michigan as beach country. You know, um, but you Great Lakes I, are sort of like the ocean, They did right? not, we did not grow up near the Great Lakes, and, uh, living in Chicago gives one sort of a false, I don't say a false experience of Lake Michigan, because you can spend a lot of time on the beach here, but it's simply not as nice as the sand on the other side of the lake. And the, I think that's due to the prevailing winds. Um, and most of the sand on the beaches up here is important. I don't want to get too much into the detail, but it, it is really nice. <laughs> Tell me more about the grains of sand, please. They, the Our sand, honestly, in Michigan it. is divine. It's lovely sand and the beaches are absolutely lovely. The water is very high this year, which um, actually reduces the amount of beach you have. But uh, it's... It's like any ocean, except no salt water. It's really nice to swim in over there. It seems like the rest of the country is sort of dealing with the fallout of climate change in profound ways. Like on the West Coast, everything is on fire. And on the East Coast, hurricanes are like like tag teaming <laughs> and like doubling up and like... I mean, we haven't had any like super strong hurricanes, but there's been some unusual weather patterns. Yes, and there's been a lot of Is there of anything hurricanes. like that? Like, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no. I think you were going to ask, what is the Midwest like in terms of catastrophic climate change? And I will say that, frankly, Chicago is pretty well insulated. Um, the weather here is generally poor. So unless winters get colder, which I suppose is a possibility, um, Chicago is not going to suffer too much. I think probably the biggest danger we have is an increase in tornadoes, which generally uh, stick to the south of us. We haven't had a lot of tornadoes up here, but it is this kind of country where you get some. Uh, and, you know, we had some storms recently that came across with big derechos, which are winds. But 
it's not earthquake country. It's not, we already are built on top of a marsh. It's unlikely that Lake Michigan will rise any more than it has or will because it's a lake and the water just goes down to the next water table. Um, you know, the rivers might get heavy and chaotic, but it's not like, it's not going to be ocean level rising kind of thing where you live on, when you live on the level of the ocean and the ocean rises, there is nowhere to go. But here, if the water goes up, it just starts going downstream more quickly. So <clears throat> it's a good place. I have to say, I didn't think I would be thinking generationally in terms of where I moved and whether this was a good investment, but so far it's not too bad. That's awesome. I went to see Tenet. <laughs> you did, huh? I'm I did. so um, curious movie theaters opened. Movie theaters opened near me. Uh, my friend operates a theater in the old William Carlos Williams Center in Rutherford. Um, and he... He, I would trust him with my life. He and you did. Takes he takes massive. I did. If that's right, he takes massive care to do all of the things beyond, above and beyond, like what's required of him by the state, even. Um, and with just like the the staff that he has to have on hand, like for like there were only two people in the theater. Let's be clear about this. It was me and some other dude, and like. There were six rows of theater seats that were blocked off so that you could only sit like one row per every six rows. Um, and I still managed to be the obnoxious person making jokes in the theater, at least during the trailers and the like very beginning of the film, because uh, interesting film, very incomprehensible <laughs> I, um, I heard that it is um, fairly dense and might require multiple viewings. It's also a bait and switch. You you watch the trailer and you think, cool, like a, a, a story in which like action happens like forward and in reverse. Like somehow um, these like time cops or something are having some kind of uh, struggle where one of them is moving forward in time and one of them is moving backward in time or like they're fire they're like solving crimes in reverse or something but it turns out to be sort of like it's like it's the thing they're trying to solve so much more than it is the thing that that makes up the bulk of the film so like they're trying to track down these weapons that have reverse entropy on them so that they travel backwards in time so when you interact with them, they interact in a in a reverse fashion. So they they fly up to your hand rather than be dropped, but they have to have been dropped in order to fly up. It's really strange. Uh, it's a it's a head scratcher, but that's not the part that's like incomprehensible. The part that's incomprehensible is the dialogue. Huh. I think that Nolan is not so interested in what people have to say a lot of the time because he he puts his scenes. And he puts his characters in situations where it's impossible to hear them and then fills their mouths with tons of expositional dialogue, which is super important to understanding what you're about to see or are seeing at the time. So, like, I'm going to interrupt you briefly just to say somewhere along the line, actually, I know when it was, I traveled with Ying to visit her family. And her father likes to have the television on, or he used to like to have the television on, rest his soul. Mm -hmm. Um, oh. and he always had the subtitles on for everything, movies, regular programs, everything. First, I thought this was extremely annoying. And then 
I realized this is by far the superior way to watch everything because <laughs> I don't always understand stuff. And when you have the subtitles there, you don't miss anything. And it is once they're there, you no longer it, it doesn't um, it doesn't bother you. Yes, I understand that's not the way that God intended you to consume uh, most visual media. But let me tell you. The advantages of having subtitles on have, in my experience, grossly outweighed the disadvantages. And I also understand that you're not going to go to a movie theater and see subtitles on Tenet, but uh, you have you have implied to me that I should wait until it comes out, and then I can watch it in the comfort of my own home with a large block of subtitles at the bottom. I describe it as, like, Nolan making a James Bond movie first draft <laughs> you, you have not and really sold a, me on this but with a but with a really cool sci-fi hook like the ideas in it are solid but I, it's such a strange story he decided it's, it's not just the it. ideas it's the execution um i'm looking forward exactly. to dune um oh the trailer is very interesting i thought it looked very very generic as far as like what we expect from the Marvel DC factory. I kind Even though it's I agree. not I agree. one of those. But like I am still I still think it looks far more uh enticing than a lot of the other things that are coming out that are from that same like pattern. I am very curious to see what they do with it. Um one final note in that particular area. Do you think that they will ever make another Blade Runner movie? Um, no. Did you see I don't Blade think, Runner? I don't think the previous one, 2049, yeah. yeah. I don't think it did that well. I think that's a shame because the more I think about it, the more I like it. And the more um, I felt like they had definitely set it up to keep going. And had they done so, I think it could have... It. I thought the ideas behind that were, were very interesting and solid. And I admit that the pacing was slow, but it was also supposed to be atmospheric. And I think we actually, I don't feel like we get a lot of atmospheric pictures nowadays. Um, there is something to to go with the sort of slow burn and the appreciation. There were parts that dragged a little, I'll give you that. And there is a fine line between atmospheric and dragging. Um, my wife and I debate a particular movie called um, The Clone Returns Home, which was a Sundance flick. And uh, from what I can tell, you either hate it or you like it. You don't necessarily love it, but it is one that I would describe as super draggy. And the people who have enjoyed it says, no, it's just atmospheric. Um, I love 2049. I thought it was almost, I, I would say it's better than the original in a lot of ways, because the original, uh, although it, it creates a world and it, and, it, and it has that sort of smoky noir feeling to it really it. does yes uh the the sequel has a better story it's just a better more compelling story I, and it builds on so many different levels i'm gonna push back on you a little bit i think you you i think to fully appreciate blade runner is to try to understand it as a product of its time and understand therefore how genre making it was how how much it okay. was you know not not typical of anything like we are <clears throat> we are inundated but i don't have to now. i don't have to take that into a into account when i say that i think that the sequel is a better film uh, okay i i hear you and i appreciate your viewpoint 
I am simply saying, gosh, I really, I think they were both excellent movies. I, I don't know that the ideas are better in the second, but I think that they're the, there is certainly beautiful tail ends to continue telling stories in this vein. Um, yeah. Here, here is another question that is more relevant for you and I than for any audience that might be listening to us at this point. You'd rather have a sequel to Blade Runner or to um, Alita? I would rather have a sequel to Alita. I think that story, because the manga continues after that, that story is unfinished. Um, I enjoyed Alita. I don't think I liked it quite as much as... I don't think I would be... I, I mean, I loved 2049 so much. And I don't think I liked Alita quite as much as I, as I did that. They're very different films, obviously. They're very different films. My take on it is, um, as much as I loved Alita, and I really did, and I would love to see a sequel, I would rather see a sequel to 2049 for um, for the primary reason is I know what the story of Alita is. <laughs> and I don't oh, know enough, what the story is for 2049. Uh, and I think that there was just a ripe universe to develop there. Uh, you said, but we should you probably... said that it led into a sequel. And I, I don't feel that as strongly as you do. Because I, I do feel that they have a couple uh, open ends or ellipses in the script where you're like, well, they could fill in the blanks here a little bit more. But the story that they told is almost like a bookend to the original film. So I kind of enjoyed that aspect of it. I confess I didn't come uh, fully prepared to discuss my Blade Runner <laughs> chops. But well, I think I it is important that we eventually talk about Summer Wars. But I mean, eventually we will need to. But I... I, if I recall specifically, there were discussions about um, the fact that uh, let's see who was who was the um, who was the villain there? Jared Leto. The, yes. Where's Nyander Wallace? Nyander was going to be coming for um, the clone that had, you know, that was that was born that had her own ideas um that was that was this central tension that was that the movie was supposed to resonate around that you know he was he was profit driven and he wanted to um he needed to have these things be self-replicating and it just wasn't happening and the fact that she existed uh was going to cause um an inexorable collision of her desire to be free and his desire to control and rule. Right, and I would say that is sort of what I was alluding to when I said that there were some ellipses in the script, like the um, the the ascension of the rebel, underground yes. rebel units that never sort of pan out into anything. I guess you could argue that they do, but they don't. <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind seeing something like that. And I think that sci-fi is an interesting thing because it often lends itself to other formats. So although you may not get another 2049 film because of the cost of it and uh, the difficulty in, in creating that kind of content on that large a scale, you might get a book or an extended universe comic book, graphic novel or something of that nature. 
I don't know. I mean, I don't know. You if might that's, one day get a TV that's series. Satisfy I mean, me. soon we're gonna get um, Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven, the game coming, which has been super delayed over and over again, but now will be arriving. Oh, is this the one hand with, in um, hand with the next generation of video games? So you never know. Maybe that will like rekindle interest in the twenty forty nine. I mean, in the Blade Runner brand, and lead to more blade runner like content or blade runner itself well i guess we just have to wait for five avatar movies and see what the story is going to be um let's let's jump back to summer wars because i think there is a lot to talk about here and i think it's all good yeah um first of all i i super enjoyed it and uh it's such a little it's such a weird and lovely mix of two different um worlds sort of like a kind of fantastical, technological, virtual world where um, everything is connected and clean and it's like presented in a way like I what made me laugh so much is it's so clean and nice. And yet when that happens in the real world, because this came out in 2009, and when that happens in the real world, we see it with virtual chat where a bunch of lunatics come in <laughs> and just turn it into like the ramblings of an insane brain like somehow oz seems to not be that it seems to be a very organized um system you know what i mean and then on the yes. other side of that you've got the family drama which is which is very earthbound i would call it um yes and very you know rigid hierarchical old school it's a very a very interesting melding of two different concepts and two different movie themes generally. You know, I haven't seen these things married together in, as what I would describe as a fairly seamless, um, a seamless interweaving. And taking each one of them, each of the stories on their own, in the sense of you've got your your cyber thriller and you've got your period drama, yes, if you will, or family, family drama. Period. They're they're. They're a little bit weak on their own, but I think that's because they are both melded together in a single movie. It's like it's like RoboCop. The human part of RoboCop is one thing. The robot part of RoboCop is one thing. But you can't take them apart and say they're each good pieces alone. They're not. They're kind of terrible individually. But together, they work extraordinarily well. Not sure that RoboCop was the best reference here, but I think it's the one we're going to have to work with. <laughs> I um, can't really comment on that because I love RoboCop and I, I can't see any flaws in the film. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. I wasn't criticizing RoboCop. How dare you? Except unless you're talking about the, the, the reboot of RoboCop, which was not terrible, but missed so much of what RoboCop was on so many levels. Nope, no, I'm not. We're not going into a criticism of RoboCop. We're just talking about Summer Wars and how it fit two fairly incongruous pieces yes, together. I understand very seamlessly. Yes. You're right in that. Um, I don't think it's enough of the high tech anime. In some ways, it's on the cover of the box. It's like it's on the posters. Like I'm saying, like like you expect a certain level of that, and for long stretches of the film you are not even touching the virtual side of it. Um, it's more of a sort of fish out of water sort of feeling where like you are introduced to this gigantic family and you're sort of embodied. The audience is sort of put in the perspective 
of not an interloper, but someone outside of that circle who's just sort of coming into it. And I'm just going to give this to you to sort of mull over. But the director in interviews has said that the, the most the thing that inspired him to make this film or gave him the spark to sort of um, riff off of was getting married and how he went from being just like a person with his own family to sort of suddenly being absorbed into another larger family. And then like in an instant, those people are just your family. And before he got married, he considered that kind of ludicrous, like, like what, like the whole idea of marriage didn't appeal to him in the sense that like, he didn't understand how two things that were like separate could suddenly merge into one single thing. And I think this movie kind of like puts you in those shoes and makes you feel that way for a long stretch of it, at least. I, I agree. And I thought that that particular story was as compelling as the as the story related to the, the cyber thriller. In fact, in some ways, I found it more touching and more and I resonated more with it than I did with the, the thriller piece. Um, I, I thought it was good and interesting and exciting and um, I was fascinated by the Jonichi family and and the way the interpersonal relationships were occurring. Um, I felt like some... Yeah, was it hard for you to keep track of all the I mean, different characters? Like, I had to, like, map it out for myself. I probably won't remember all of their oh, names no, while talking. I won't talking. remember all of their names. I'll probably but have to I, describe them. To be fair, them. not all of them were... It wasn't essential to know all the names. Um, there were some things that were interesting and plot contrivances some deus ex machinas that i thought were a little far-fetched but you have to suspend your disbelief for any movie and i don't think summer wars needs to be an exception to that no no certainly not um so just we'll just give a little brief summary of like what gets us to the point where we're with the family um i talked about it in the intro but basically it's a high school story um a boy who's shy he's good at math he was almost on the math olympics math olympics team for japan so he's he's quite the whiz um he just agrees he leaves his summer job working for oz the virtual world that connects everybody connects governments people's bank accounts it's so funny that it that, that we're watching this in the coronavirus time because certainly um that's how things could go if we weren't able to interact in the real world. Like having virtual concerts is a thing. It's not that popular, but if taken away from me long enough, I'm sure I would pay to feel like I was at a concert with like someone. It doesn't it's not doesn't necessarily have to be like a virtual idol or a vocaloid. It could be like, I don't know. Carly Ray Jepsen or something like the virtual experience of going to Carly Ray Jepsen like with my you know my virtual helmet on and feeling like I'm in a concert with a lot of other people like that barrier if that were if you could lessen the like feeling of of it being unreal that could be a thing in the future and it is in this in this movie I I'm going on a tangent here but Sakuma is Kenji's friend, and he's not picked, but Natsuki picks Kenji, who immediately leaps at the chance to follow her. She's a popular girl. She's a one year older than him. And he goes and goes to her hometown in uh, Ueda, which is in Nagano Prefecture, 
to help out with the celebration of her grandmother's 90th birthday. At least that's that's the auspices under which he's invited. I have a couple questions for you. First of all, I watched it in the English dub, which I thought was excellent, by the way. Yeah, the English um, dub was good. I was not aware until I started doing some research afterward as to the ages of the parties involved and whether or not they were still in high school or not or were in some later thing. I mean, it's not... Oh, well, you have to assume that you have to, that you don't have to assume, but you, you do know that Kenji, they are in high school uniforms when it starts. Um, and they seem to be on summer break. So that puts them uh, in their third, it puts her in her third year, going into her third year and he going into his second, perhaps. Um, but we know that the, that he's definitely not in college because that's his profile, his profile is that he's a college student, and they tell you on the news that he is not. He yeah, is, yeah. He's a high okay, school student. fair enough. But until that point, I don't know that I would have otherwise picked up on it. The high school uniform, I'm afraid, is lost on me. I do want to mention this, though. Um, when I watched the behind-the-scenes stuff on the Japanese version, and they have terrible behind-the-scenes stuff, like, it looks like it was shot 20 years ago. It's very rough-looking. And the sound is not great, but they do have these very candid interviews with the cast and and the director. And I noticed that they cast the characters pretty much close to the age that they actually are. So the actors portraying them are all very similar in age to the the Hmm. characters they play, which is such an interesting choice to me. I mean, it makes sense logically, but it's just generally not how voice acting is done i think is your point right also in america we tend they they tend to cast um celebrities in these roles in order to get the marquee right in order to fill the marquee with big names like you know justin timberlake's gonna draw people but who's gonna see go go see trolls with like one of the guys who voiced um one of the guys on futurama or something right like billy west i wonder Maybe the movie should stand on its merits and not on the star power of the voice actor. Just to just throwing that well, out. Right. There. That's no. Of course, I believe that. Um, but Hollywood needs to make money, I guess, and they they want to the make you the said most that money. Was Hollywood. I, I, I just Hollywood. <laughs> that that place in uh, Los Angeles, I believe. Holly Hollywood is it. Yeah. Anyway, so it turns out that she lies to her family. She told them that she had a boyfriend uh, that went to Tokyo University. I mean, this is Natsuki I'm talking (laughs) about. She tells her family and her grandmother specifically, who's sort of the maternal... What do you call that? The matriarch. She's the matriarch of the family. Thank you. She tells her a lie that she has this family i mean so she has this boyfriend and uh he went to the most prestigious university in japan he also studied abroad he also is from an old rich family well he doesn't she doesn't say rich she just says old family which means the same type of family that she comes from prestigious prestigious of, right of the old of equivalent social quality old money that's how he would say it here right we might Although they, it turns out that their family uh, squandered, their grandfather squandered the wealth um, and 
lost pretty much all of their business interests in the process. But they are incredibly upbeat family. They're incredibly, uh, the men especially are incredibly, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Don? How would you describe the men of the family? Because the women are very strong-willed and they're very organized. And they're the ones holding, they're the glue that holds the family together. This to me is a very um, traditional family in that the men are, they are the hard workers, but at home they um, they are left to their own devices. They do not have a role in maintaining the household in any meaningful context. Um, and so they, they're sort of, loutish is too strong a word, but they're able to pursue their own interests, kind of lollygag. Right, uh, there's sort of a combination about. between loutish and uh, and sort of ineffective, <laughs> ineffectual. <laughs> yeah, they're they're not in charge in the home by far. But the ex- there it does appear and one would anticipate that there is a high expectation that they be very productive outside of the home. They're the bring home the bacon type. Uh, I totally felt that because when we first arrive, none of them are there. They're all at their jobs. Um, yes, but there was one character who shows up a little earlier who's uh, male. His name is Uncle Monske. And um, he ends up being sort of... All he ever seems to want to talk about is the glory days of the clan. Um, of the... What is it? The Takeda clan? Jinochi. No, no, no. It's they oh, were yeah, part the, of the, the, the Takeda yes. clan. Yes, that's right. And they fought against the Tokugawa. And he's he's like brave and he has this warrior spirit and everything he says is like 300. Like it was them against us. And like the odds were way in their favor. And like it turns out that like they, they lost a lot. <laughs> but they always fought. And that sort of typifies the male side, the, the sort of male passion side of the family. A bit of bluster, a bit of... Uh, and so there's um, a nice contrast. There's a nice contrast between that that type of person and who we're presented with, which is yet another sort of like shy, inexperienced boy who doesn't seem to... He hasn't seemed to have much of, much of that fire in him, right? Um, Kenji. Uh, but he's suddenly thrust into the role of being the bridegroom <laughs> of this clan. And yes. I, I love, I love the grandmother. Can we talk about her a little bit? Of course, she's a fantastic character. First of all, in Japanese, her voice is spot on. Uh, I loved everything about it. Just the way that she commands respect and the way that she always seems to be thinking just one little step ahead of everybody. It's very, very attractive. And when she meets Kenji, she immediately goes in and like, she's like, are you willing to die <laughs> to protect um, Natsuki? And we know Natsuki has a little bit of fire in her. You know, she's a little bit spunky and freewheeling. And I sort of see a little bit of of the grandmother in Natsuki. Um, because the only other, like, the, the, the one we, the other one we meet is, uh, is Natsuki's aunt, who is definitely the glue that holds the family together. She's sort of like the head sister. 
And yes. uh, she's the she is in charge of the household. She's very level headed, and Natsuki seems to be a bit more. Um, she seems to risk a bit more in her interactions with things, and she seems to have a she's little impulsive. bit more. She's impulsive. She's right. Impulsivity. She's still a child. Yeah, I mean, she's still a child, but like. We also see a picture of the grandmother at one point, and she does seem bear a very close resemblance to Natsuki, in my opinion. There's a really interesting thing that happens here where uh, Kenji is now completely, like, he's stuck in layers here. Uh, it's funny because Sakuma thinks that he's in some kind of, like, fun summer sex comedy romp or something, but... Kenji is is the odd man out, clearly. And now he has to shoulder... Like, he was going to be a little feeling like he was at someone's high school reunion to begin with, right? Or family reunion to begin with. But now he has this layer of a lie on top of it that he has to uphold. Where he's supposed to be this college kid. He's supposed to have studied abroad. That never really pans out in any way. Like nobody challenges him on that. And it's it's not so much a cringe comedy where people are like kind of like discovering things about him and like questioning his like his story so much. Uh, that happens a tiny bit, but it's not like the focus of the movie. Which I thought was good. Like I don't want. I don't really like cringe comedy too much. No, I'm not a fan. So that was nice for me. And now he has to deal with like, um, also portraying her lover. <laughs> and they like, I think it was Mons- Mansuke who goes all in immediately on him. Just ask, was it him or no? It was another guy. At the at the initial family dinner, yes. One of the uncles starts asking him flat out if they're having sex. Yes. There was, well, there was a couple of things. There was one that was asking if they were having sex and another one saying like the, he's not good enough. He needed to have been introduced first, getting really up in um, Koiso's face. And it's just in, in, sorry, in Kenji's face. And I, I, <laughs> it was, it would definitely not be the kind of questions I would want to ask or have asked of me, especially not in front of the entire family. And you've got, you know, essentially there's all these different dynamics going on and the family is just sort of sailing over it. Everyone's just following their own narrative and is very comfortable with the fact that everyone else is following their own narrative. And it's it's a very, I imagine, you know, in the in the suspended realism of being this character, Kenji, who hasn't been around a large family, it's absolutely overwhelming. I mean, it seemed overwhelming to me and I'm, I'm with a family, you know, I, I love my family, it's fine, but... Uh, you know, I, I feel belong. I belong to a family, but nothing quite as expansive as this. You know, just and he's introduced, and everybody's name is just rattled off. And it's like you got it all. Of course, he doesn't have it all. No one would have all that. No, of course not. But someone who's from that might assume that you could get it all somehow. I, I think it's more an understanding that there's no way you would get it all, but there's no point in you getting it all. You'll just have to absorb it on your own time. Like even if it was half that, I wouldn't get it all. <laughs> I forget, like, people who are sitting next to me, usually. That's on me, but... You know what's interesting to me is I come from a very small family, as far as my nuclear family goes. Like, I grew up with a dad, a mom, a sister. Um, I had my grandparents living next door, and then they moved to Florida. I had a couple... uh, I didn't have any actual cousins from my dad's side, because he was an only child. 
and I had I had my mom's extended family from Vietnam, but I didn't even meet them until I was like 10 years old. And when I did go there, it was like this. It was like people laughing and smiling at the small things I said because they already had their own secret languages and and communication uh, methods. And I was just so far outside of like what they were. And they, they fed me and they... They, oh, nice. they were very they were very like hospitable to a point but like at some point i just felt like like the the river was rushing past me and i was being left behind constantly which was not a great feeling um but i i also was a i also was a little younger than kenji so i might not have been more willing to to make those efforts myself to ingratiate myself into that system but i don't know about you but um because when you married, did you marry into a big family? Oh, well, Ying's family, Ying's nuclear family is relatively small. But Ying's extended family is enormous. She's constantly referring to cousins that I've never heard of or about before. She's got like these cousin groups on Facebook that are just enormous. And like there'll be messages coming in all hours of the day because they're spread all around the world. Um, I've met a couple of these cousins, but the the sum total is that, yeah, it's it's um i i did marry into something like this and i i've one of the times i remember you know i was meeting ying and um some of her uh cousins and went to dinner and it was it was a big boisterous family and i've been to a couple of of dinners where everything is like that to you know to i feel honored to have been included in some of these to the extent that they really consider me part of that circle. And so I, I, I've never felt ostracized or excluded, even though I'm not of the same, um, you know, they're primarily Chinese and I am definitely not, but I've definitely always felt part of the family. Was there ever like sort of an awkward moment where you just didn't understand something and like everyone else was laughing and like you kind of had to just catch up? Yes, and let's not forget that several of them would speak exclusively in Chinese, which I or Mandarin, which I still do not speak, and therefore, there's no way that I was going to understand them. Um, but I, you know, I I took the motto of "what you don't know can't hurt you," so um, just forged onward. That's good. I've also had some of those relatives speak to me directly in Chinese, and then expect a, a response because they've forgotten that I don't speak Chinese. For me, uh-huh. my Vietnamese family, um, when I went to visit them, they started cooking at like 9 a.m., making spring rolls. All the women in the kitchen, at the time I was a boy, where I was presenting mail. And that's what they, you know, 100% assumed I was. And um, I wasn't even allowed in the kitchen. I had to hang out with the boys on the couch. And they made spring rolls from 9 a.m. until 9 p.m., and they just kept feeding me and saying how skinny I was. Well, you were skinny. I was skinny, but I don't you want to die of a pulmonary. <laughs> were they good spring embolism? Rolls? They are so fucking good. Holy shit! They are like, and and we make them today. Like I took the recipe, and and Takako actually improved upon it a little bit. <laughs> but um, it's so good, Don. I could eat those things forever. And I did. And I got 
feel felt sick and like they even like listened to me like i didn't like vegetables back then very much i had a very picky uh palate and they made me just mashed potatoes they made me a whole thing of mashed potatoes <laughs> and spring rolls so you know they tried they tried their best and they were probably like like asking what's up with me uh, behind scenes but it didn't matter as you said like it probably didn't hurt me since it wasn't a big deal but here kenji um and and to really just put a point on what you were saying that everyone has their own thing let's just name a couple things that everyone had so there's there's the woman who's constantly watching her son uh play in the what looks like the nationals or the regionals for baseball and she's got the sports jersey on and she's just the the sports mom she's she's all about her high schooler oh man Uh, and you know it's but it's in a sweet way. Like I, yeah. I love how all the idiosyncrasies of the characters are treated as endearing characters, as opposed to like just insufferable <laughs> monsters. Yeah, there's only one. There's only one character that really comes off as insufferable, and that is Shoda, who has a thing for Natsuki, his second cousin. But his his over eagerness and his his dumb boyishness is counteracted by all of the women who just cut him to the quick at every given moment it's yeah it's clear that everyone seems to feel that they know what shoda is doing and why he's behaving this way and no one is having any um any truck with it they're they're not at all um giving him any quarter yeah even when um even when kenji's secret gets out and natsuki ends up being like put under the spotlight and suddenly they all start like putting the connections together because they are intimately familiar of her whole history they are like um i know we didn't introduce wabiske as a character but he's basically the black sheep of the family and she's uh, an older um relation of hers by not by blood but by uh, i guess adoption i guess she is i guess he is related by blood but kind of a distant blood and he was her first crush and he also um, was the basis for the profile that she sort of foist upon Kenji, which I thought was a really neat detail. And he also was treated like an outsider because he was from an illicit affair. His their their no good grandfather, basically. I I would call him kind of a no good guy. He ha- was a philanderer, and he had an affair which produced a child outside of. Outside of his marriage. Wedlock. Outside and, of wedlock, yes. And the, the grandmother and the, the family took that child in. And that's Wabiske. And he's por- he, when he first arrives, he's very much portrayed as a black sheep. Uh, people are very wary of him because he's been missing for a while. And he, he didn't ingratiate himself to them while he was there, I guess. But it turns out that Natsuki's sort of uh, flame that she carries for him from girlhood... Um, has persisted and she and and as the family puts together those pieces they even mention an essay that she wrote called my uncle and me and you can just see how mortified natsuki is by this whole line of questioning and and accusations oh yeah she can't she cannot stand it she does not want any scrutiny put on it whatsoever yeah her color just drops completely and and that's sort of a fun detail about this movie 
I don't know if you would agree, but it it does balance sort of um, realistic, grounded moments with more fantastical anime moments. And I'm not just talking about the stuff that happens in the virtual world, but like scenes where um, like he comes upon, like Kenji comes upon Natsuki coming out of the bath or he goes to take a bath and then the two boys pop up and surprise him and he does a pratfall kind of moments, right? That they they came across as sweet and just just um, sort of regular situational comedy, but but the whole structure of it made it very palatable to me. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I I just I thought it was very good and entertaining, and I thought that the way that they portrayed it was um, it didn't it didn't play it for laughs. It played it sort of as natural misunderstandings I, that's not to say that it's not comedic no yes i understand but I feel what like you're it, saying. they weren't they weren't heavy-handed about it like the the drama was in the interpersonal relationships and that was what was being focused on the other stuff was just helped add flavor to it if you will yeah and and there's other characters too some of them are less successful i'm not as convinced that kazuma is as interesting as the movie gives him uh, screen time He's important to the virtual story and that he uh, he is he's sort of a a sheltered hacker type spends his time sort of sequestered from the rest of the family. And that might just be his age. that sort of has separated him, but he's sort of isolated from the rest of the family and he spends his time in the room because he uh, in the real world is a smallish boy, you know, not not particularly like memorable in any way, but. He in unassuming. In the ver- unassuming. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you so much. He in the virtual world is King Kazuma, and <laughs> he's the rabbit on the cover of the the rabbit in the like Back to the Future <laughs> vest on the cover of the of the poster or the of the Blu-ray, and um, he he he's a fighter. He can fight, and he's one of the strongest people in the virtual world, which is a worldwide thing, Oz. Oz is worldwide, so he's a big deal. Yeah. That's 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 all that's all we get for most of the movie until they start giving you more details about him. And I'm not sure it really pays off. I'm not sure. Uh what did you I mean Yeah, what did you think? I did feel that there were some elements there for both like I thought the the initial presentation of the family and the the interpersonal relationships was probably the strongest part of the whole movie when kenji is feeling out of water feeling out of place but also you know relishing the experience um and then we start having the sort of the the actual drama to flow in related to the digital world related to oz um i thought that was that was very good about how it was going on. And I thought the reveal um, about uh, Kazuma was, was good. Um, But I, I felt that some of the elements of Oz, the physical fighting of the, um, of the virus of, of uh, love machine, the, the, the card playing some of these elements felt contrived because we were we're trying like you have you you're humanizing the virus in order to make drama out of how humans can interact with it it's a necessary element 
and this is not the first movie to do so. I mean, uh, I, you can think of all sorts of things, but... Um, you can't think of anything, can it, you? <laughs> well, the thing that came to mind was Lawnmower Man, but then I struggle with that one because actually that was a, a more... Yeah, the, the villain was actually a person who had been augmented by this, right. and therefore, yeah. of course, they're humanized. Yeah. Um, but it's very boring to just fight a virus that is being a virus because it's not they tend not to be dynamic and the ways in which they act are very predictable and sta stable in spite of the fact that they're you know destroying whatever it is they're working with and so therefore it's sort of like you you have this character in love machine that has to have an inquisitive nature and has to react differently to stimuli that's applied in the same way at different times and that's the really big challenge like computer programs tend to be very static so there was some explanation of that um we did have some evolving of the of love machine but it was also to me i i couldn't always tell like why we're going this particular way with love machine why we're i i didn't feel that love machine of all people was as well fleshed out a character and provided a good foil i thought that you know the idea was still very interesting and i i don't think it detracted too much from the movie but that was an area where i was like i feel this is a little bit weak. he i mean not he <laughs> well you but, can you can call well, it let's he. talk first about sort of the, where we how we get into this virtual world um it's introduced at the beginning of the movie then it disappears for a long stretch but it comes back in a pretty interesting way um one night Kenji gets a logic puzzle uh, on his phone, which he spends the whole night solving. And when he types in the answer, there's like a telltale sign that <laughs> that he's unleashed a virus, right? Like it's like it's like that typical like the screen like gets a glitch and then suddenly you see like a, a jack in the box pop up with like a kind of scary looking like smiley face. And there's a very Japanese feeling to that, like Japanese anime feeling to that, like the the sort of like smile in the darkness, which seems very cliche to me. But it turns out that he has unleashed this program called Love Machine, an AI that's gone rogue, and it has corrupted and taken over people's accounts, including his, which was um, the first avatar he has in the movie. And he mounts an attack to try to get it back, but it fails because Kazuma's King Kazuma gets distracted by real life. And I think that's where the movie sort of succeeds, actually. Um, oh, I, I thought that was extraordinarily realistic. You've got these little kids who want to be in on the action and are literally crawling all over you to see it. And it's impossible, like, or the the correct action is of course not to literally swat them away although that's the most desirable action for anybody who's experienced this right and and that also plays into the fact that Kazuma is going to be a big brother by the end of the movie um, yeah because he's sort of he's also sort of dealing with how to interact with like how to be a big brother um and he's not very good at that sort of interpersonal relationship stuff so Anyway, Love Machine, which is named after a morning Musume song. I don't know if that came across, but uh, it's maybe not named after, but it has the same name as a morning Musume song. And there is a joke in the movie about that. But it, Okay, 
The joke is specifically pertaining to that right. song. Um, I used to sing it at karaoke. I had that karaoke machine, and um, there was a song. Okay. Nope, nope. You don't. You've done enough. You have done enough. Love is so wonderful, or something like that. I don't know. But um, it was a very, very popular song. Um, very ubiquitous. Everywhere you went, it plays. Uh, Morning Musume was is is one of the top idol groups in Japanese culture and history, I guess, or at least it, they owned like a decade, okay? So, Love Machine. To me, you, you mentioned that you weren't sure about it as a character and all this, but to me, Love Machine represents chaos, um, a sort of playful chaos that threatens the organized, the, the organization of of Japan and basically all social systems. Yeah, all the world. I mean, I, it's playful, but it's also malicious. Yes. And it's like Loki in a way. Right. It also is sort of like a devil in that it sort of yeah. wants to play a game with high stakes. Thrill-seeking. I really loved when Love Machine goes from just sort of like beating up King Kazuma or doing small little like graffiti like uh scribbles and stuff and messing up the the pretty looking organized oz world and uh, when he goes from that to messing with actual like government uh run infrastructure so like instead of showing it in a way that was more it he they they, they depict it by showing you like he flips tiles as if it's like one of those games where you're sliding the like tiles around to form a picture and mm-hmm. he he pulls a string to change the subways like it's a string with like it's almost like a mobile with like little like um stops hanging on each string and he just whips them down and they go like falling all apart and get scattered and we see this in the virtual world and it's all very playful and it looks like games. Even at one point, um, it, they depict it as dominoes, right? They show like all of these systems falling one after another, like dominoes. And, and it's it's clear that this, this thing likes to play games, which is something Kazuma says as well with his sort of weird sixth sense about these things. But um, I really like the way they did that. I did too. You know, the the climax of the film is almost like this big high-stakes war games, right? Yes, absolutely. Very high stakes. It kind of, it almost catches me off guard. Like, I felt like the stakes were too high for the movie that I had been watching. Uh, You know what what the problem for me was? That it seemed like everybody's story had to have a moment in that high-stakes game. But not, but it, it had to be a huge moment. Like... I think that they could have scaled it back a little bit and still had a high impact because the for me the most impact in this entire movie is when the grandmother goes into action. And she doesn't she doesn't deal with all with the virtual world. Her battle is fought entirely in the real world and it's fought with a telephone and a and a and a notebook Rolodex and she just starts calling people and she, and and in turns she encourages them. She like encourages them to be their best self, to realize their potential, to stand proud in this moment. I don't know what to call it exactly. Firm but, in the face of adversity. Right. 
Yeah, and and that that was one of the reasons I really loved the character, which I wanted to mention before, but I kind of wanted to lay the groundwork for why I loved that moment so much. And like her just calling these important people, because even though her family has sort of been uh, taken out of out of the business aspect and like they're no longer they're no their their name no longer has the the commands the respect that it once may have right well i take it back the 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 name still commands respect but there is no power behind the the name there's no money behind it she is a powerful character but that power is on the wane like they're you know they won't have the influence that they once wielded um on the other hand i completely agree with you that the character was you know she knew what her strengths were she knew the right way to um galvanize people into action and really love that you know, word really be a catalyst for turning the tide of this chaos that's been spawned upon it and what's so interesting is she's only she's only spurring people on in the real world but there is a deliberate scene where you see love machine reacting to and annoyed by or frustrated by her efforts and he singles her out um on his digital grid yeah he does but i'm that's interesting because nothing comes of that as far as love machines direct attack to the family i i i thought about it when we heard that her connection to the um to the health service had been cut off oh maybe that's good don that's good I would I would agree with you there. I thought that it was in fact a poison pill, if you will, that had been um, slipped by Love Machine, which you know to me was made him less than just a Joker character, but or you know a, a an agent of chaos, but literally malicious and evil. Mm. Um, and and that that makes a lot of sense. Why then Manske once well I should say that um, she passes away not too long after that. And we'll talk about Spoiler that. Spoiler alert. We'll, we'll give <laughs> we'll give that whole bit its due, right? With um Wabiske and her and the Naginata. But before that, I just want to say that um there's one moment where Manske stands up and basically says that he wants vengeance on he wants vengeance on uh on Love Machine. On Love Machine. Yeah, he's well, what's interesting is the women are you know, this was supposed to be a birthday celebration. What a tragedy now. All hands on deck, changing this to a funeral, um, a wake uh, party for her passing. Even that um, comes off as sweet to me. Oh, it's it's absolutely sweet. The, you know, but it's also a, a testament to how regimented the household is, how yes. the women spring into action. And the men have, they're doing nothing, right? They have no part in all these elaborate plans. And the first thing you hear is this uncle jumping up and saying, you know, we we need to fight back against this thing because it took out our beloved grandmother. Um, And it's to me, it was quite, you know, this is where Kenji himself gets into a spot of trouble. But the what what was so striking to me is how how much free time the men had to execute this particular plan once they moved forward with it. Right, yeah. 
Hey there, I'm Marn, and I've got a new podcast right here on the Orange Groves Network. Every other Thursday on Dead Letter Society, I'm going to invite a friend into my library of terror to discuss a piece of horror fiction. We'll tackle topics like, why does Stephen King like evil clowns so much? Why is Ikea so inherently scary? And why don't young adult publishers like the horror genre? You can even read along with us week to week and weigh in with your own opinions on the Orange Groves Discord. So check out Dead Letter Society, a horror book club podcast, on the Orange Groves Network website or your podcast provider of choice. Hi, I'm Caitlin. And I'm Joe. Sugar We're Going Down podcasting is exactly what it sounds like. Each week, we get a random Fall Out Boy song and discuss it in various ways, such as... What are its merits musically? Is it a bop? Does it have chugs? It's lyrical complexity. Sometimes Pete writes a triple entendre, and sometimes he doesn't even finish the first entendre. Does the video make any goddamn sense, though? Usually, no. How gay does it make us feel? Usually, a lot of gay. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your personal podcatcher of choice and get a new episode every Wednesday until it kills us. Caitlin, is this more than you bargained for yet? Honestly, it already is. talk about it but it turns out that love machine was created by their own relative wabisuke which you know that's quite a coincidence but anime <laughs> yeah this there's there's a few too many coincidences in this particular uh movie but um again as you point out that's that's just the nature of the beast yeah you're um, just in for the ride you know wabisuke and and the grandmother have and sake have a, a tremendous sakai. amount sakai have a good deal of tension um oh yeah they're but, very similar but um, what you know what i find interesting is you know that wabisuke would he in fact wants to please her and would never want to hurt her and you know he doesn't take responsibility for his creation and it ends up as we see here in the plot development destroying her so I thought that was, you know, I felt like a li- there was a little short shift there because there was, I didn't sense grieving. From, I mean, you had a, a flash of it, um, but I, I felt like there needed to be more soul searching and introspection and um, and self-castigation as part of that. But there wasn't enough space in the movie for it. Honestly. Yeah, I think they gave some of it. Um, he's sort of in disbelief when Natsuki tells him that she's gone and there's this really sweet <laughs> there's that word again there's this really charming um last statement i don't know if you would call it a will but it's a last statement from their matriarch that basically forgives wabisuke of his of his transgressions yeah, yeah. it wasn't and, forgiving and says, so much it's it's the return of the prodigal son if he comes back, feed him. He's been gone for too long. I still you know. say it's forgiveness in a way, though, because it, clearly they didn't leave on the best of terms or they, he hasn't held up his end of whatever deal they well, made. So here's a question I have for you. Do you think this letter was written 
since Wabiske has returned. No. No, it's been written before he made that appearance on her 10th birthday. Correct. Her, his, the 10th anniversary, the first birthday after he'd been gone for 10 years is what I'm trying to say. But like you said, even when they first see each other, there's this prickliness. There's this tangible see, tension I, between the is, two of them. But she is much more open and welcoming to him. If I, I would I would challenge no. you on the prickliness. She is much more welcoming to him than others are. She is in her own way. She's not she's not anyone to open to you know, embrace someone upon their arrival. But she is I, I would not say that she is um I did not feel that she was cold to him. I might you may have interpreted differently or maybe I'm maybe I don't I'm misremembering it, but this is how I felt. She's cold to a point, I would say. But then she does that thing. Like you said, she she basically offers to feed him. She inquires after how he's been taking care of himself. And even in the goodbye note, she says that he's he's prone to not do that, to not self-care. And so he should be allowed to eat whatever he wants from their bountiful garden of plenty. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> he is, whatever. She, he is her adoptee, but essentially is her son from the sense of age. Right. right? He is from a family hierarchy, hierarchy point of view, superior to many of these uncles who are whining about, I believe, um, who are third generation as opposed to second generation, assuming she's the first generation. Can I ask you a question now? You can. Why did she let the family believe the worst of him? She let them believe that he took her items without her permission and sold them in order to fund his own personal journey. When, in fact, what we find out is she is the one who told him to do so. Maybe I missed that detail. I I think... Okay, but assuming that you missed the detail, now that you've heard it, or what you've heard that I experienced, what would you say to that? I would wonder, first of all, like, she knows the truth and he knows the truth. It's unclear if others are... I didn't... Are they talking about it in front of her? Because I feel like that's... She's not a gossipy kind of person. You would never... I mean, she would have her own coterie her own contemporaries you know the 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 circle that she would run with but never with her children that i don't sense i would ever she would never gossip ill or even gossip about you know her other children with her that that would not happen right there is i would feel that there is a very firm hierarchical separation between that's a good way to think about it so there wouldn't be a situation which they'd be like well where they say to her you know mom you you got swindled by this bastard son or something. And that, that conversation just simply wouldn't occur. Um, and so if it's not coming up in conversation, and it's quite possible it wouldn't, um, then they may have this mis, misguided understanding that they might circulate among themselves, but nobody's going to bring it up with Granny. That's just not going to happen. So she she wouldn't necessarily have a position to um, set the record straight and to call them out on the carpet for it. You're probably somewhat accurate in that because when she does enter the room, they seem to hush up a bit. Um, but they're pretty they're pretty cruel to Wabiske when he comes back. 
Absolutely. But they But then you know, when they don't she like arrives. The way, yeah, they they immediately as you said, hush up. They they snap to attention. Interesting. Um so that scene is really great in a lot of ways because it goes from sort of like this as we as I was saying, like a prickliness to to a a warmth. And then suddenly once it's revealed that Wabiske's master plan here was to was to sort of repay the debt of kindness to his grandmother by restoring the family's uh, fortune and maybe even exceeding the fortune of before by creating this AI that then the governments are testing, I guess. But that's not really clear in this scene. But later at the end of the movie, they make it clear that the Department of Justice was the one who released it. But he basically shows off a contract with the government saying, I think it's the U.S. government, saying that they want to fund or buy his um, his. Right. Well, my understanding is he, doesn't, he, he does not reveal this until after the contract is signed. So he doesn't count his chickens before they hatch. Like, this was the test run. It went well. Now the contract is signed. Now we have... Right. We we will be restored. And, of course, she... This is the other... Actually, this is the scene I thought you were referring to as her most... Um, most most um, exciting scene or most powerful scene where she pulls out the sword and is literally slashing at him. Because... It, and my interpretation is he has bought the wealth of the family back, but he's done it at the cost of other people. And that is unacceptable. You know, the whole point is that they are supposed to be the protectors of people. They are supposed to, you know, she was, if nothing, but not a helper of others. She understands that there was a human cost and she wanted to minimize that human cost as much as possible. And his actions, of course, are indifferent to the, to the suffering that has been caused by his creation. And he's no Frankenstein. He does not, you know, there's no, there's no moral connection to I made this and I am responsible for it. Um, we could go back to, uh, <laughs> well, we could actually okay. contrapose it again with Blade Runner about how, you know, oh. what morally are you supposed to, or how morally responsible are you for your creations if they have their own um, mental acuity and make decisions that they should not. I never really put that together, but you're right. It totally ties in. I really am interested in looking at him as a possible um, picture of his grandfather. I mean, of her, of his father. Yes, his actual father, right. Granny's husband. We never meet him. He's never pictured. He's, he's uh, dead. He's dead, but he would have had a shrine or something. But he seems to sort of be an afterthought of the family at this point. Like, they've moved past him. Well, yeah, and I think it's sort of like he was a very powerful, impactful man. You Because you wouldn't be married to Granny if you weren't. No, certainly um, but not. But his, his, the sun has set on his empire. He is gone. And the family is sort of basking in the the glow of all previous generations and they're 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 dying out right in the sense of their their wealth is slowly deteriorating exactly um, and dwindling and as a result so will their prefecture or their 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 land i presume everything and so she probably the reason she turns the blade on him which 
we find out that she she doesn't have the intent to kill she might have the had the intent to kill him but when she gets the chance and he holds the blade with his hand he doesn't seem to get cut i don't know maybe he did no yeah that was i mean it was an interesting a very interesting scene because yes you would expect someone grabbing a blade to be hurt by doing so um so the question is he's by grabbing the blade he's both being defiant and calling her bluff yeah yes absolutely um and so it's a disrespectful act even if it's a defensive act at the same time and she's probably disappointed in him in seeing those parts of her husband that that were not as honorable like i think she she takes a lot of credit for who the person he's become right she seems to have had a huge part in shaping who he is and so she must feel a lot of responsibility for who he's become. And that's yes. why I think she turns a blade on him. In that well, because moment. he's disrespecting the family by taking actions that are indifferent to the causes that they fought for. Right, and she she expects better of him, yeah, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. That's how I see it. I want to talk a little bit about what's a really cool thing that I discovered um, while watching the extras, is that... When they recorded this, at least in the Japanese version, again, if the English version was really great, I don't know if they did this in that because I didn't see the uh, English people interviewed. But in the Japanese version, a lot of times uh, anime voiceovers are recorded in isolation. So whether or not you have a scene with someone else, and this is not even just true of animation, of anime, but animation, right? Right. It's all done independently. Someone does all their lines in a sound booth somewhere. Right. And they sort of react off of um, an animatic that gives us a, gives them a certain time amount of time to say uh, their lines so that the animators can sort of fill in the blanks. And in this case, much like uh, Rango, Rango, the Johnny Depp um, CG animation from a couple of years back, uh, they recorded them Whenever they were in a scene together, they recorded them together. And so uh, even when they didn't have a speaking role, if you were in the scene, you were in the room when they recorded it. And they were doing simultaneously. They were simultaneously getting takes from people in a lot of cases. I don't know if that was for the whole thing or if they just did it for some of the big scenes to give it that sort of sense of cohesion. And... um, that's that's a great touch, I think, that, that this brings to an anime which is largely about how families interact and how they play off of each other and how they express themselves when they're all together. Yeah, I, I mean, it does feel very naturalistic in that context. Uh, I don't, I but I only watch the English dub, so I don't know if they just did a really great job or if they did the same sort of action. I mean, with the dub, I think it's even harder because you've got to effectively translate and the words have to be spoken in the same amount of time that it took to speak the the Japanese versions, which isn't always easy uh, to, to pull off. So sort of as we get towards the end of the movie, um, I want to talk a bit about that game. <laughs> About which, Oz? Is, which plays a pivotal oh, role. Koi Koi. Yes. Well, it's actually called Hanafuda, which is just a flower card, you know? And uh, I don't know the rules of it. 
and I am very confused by it. <laughs> but it's an integral part of the movie because it comes up in three different places at least. Um, it's it is the game they play before uh, the grandmother passes on. As Kenji sort of learns the traditions of this family that he's grown fond of, he's grown an admiration for, he's grown a part of, even if he ends up not marrying Natsuki in the end. At least for the time that he's there, he feels like he's a part of their family and he's been accepted on some level, right? It's also part of the bet between Natsuki and Wabisuke when... uh, when they play each other for I forget what they were what the stakes of that particular game were, but there's some information. She wants him to take her to America and have this kind of like whirlwind tour and spend lots of time together, right? Because she's still got a little bit of a girl crush on like a, a girlhood crush on him. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the finale, which I love the fact that the finale and, and this is even pointed out by the characters in the movie, that the finale comes down to not... Well, it does come down to eventually uh, Kenji, but it comes down to Natsuki playing a game of Hanafuda against this monster after so many of their complex machinations have failed them. Like, they have this whole plan where they're going to trap him in a castle. And I, I can't believe you brought up Lawnmower Man because it is almost exactly the yes. same. Well, honestly, it, it came to mind when that when that scene happened, that he's racing for the door and the door is closing. I was like, oh, man, this is Lawnmower Man, this particular scene, except, of course, the outcome is ultimately the same, but different in this particular instance. Right. And again, something from the real world, some human moment, some human feeling or emotion, or just a fumbling sort of, like, desire interferes with the big plan. So, like, before we were talking about how Kazuma was, like, kicking, kicking Love Machine's butt all over the place, had him in a headlock, and then suddenly the kids show up and they mess the whole thing up. Well, here, they have this plan to use a supercomputer and, like, all this technology to isolate isolate, yep. isolate Love Machine and seal him off from all of the other interactions and eventually just, like, drown him out and die- and kill him off, right? But that relies on there being ice next to the supercomputer to keep it from super overheating. But Shoda moves the ice, and he does it in, a, in, a, in an effort to, to uh, pay his respects and, and keep his grandmother's corpse... From from decaying in the hot day? Yeah, from getting all randy in the hot summer day. Like, Japanese summers are no joke. They are super humid. And I can't imagine what a corpse would do in some of that heat. It must be terrible. So, like, he did it with, like, love in his heart and for the right reasons. But it totally fucks up their plan. I mean, this is one of those points where I was actually super mad for the... At, at the time, because I was like, first of all, all our finely laid plans have, have come undone and the machine is out and that much stronger. Second, yeah, you don't think just a little bit that this huge production of bringing in this monstrous computer, isolating in a room and surrounding it with ice might not have been important and therefore yanking out the ice is going to cause some serious issues. Third, 
That's like destroying a supercomputer, which last time I checked are near millions of dollars worth of equipment. Like, I guess this family still has some cash kicking around that it's okay to have fucked up. But this, this was already a purchased piece of equipment that was going to like a university or something. Like, you can't just mess that up and everybody, oh, I guess it's fine. Like, holy shit, dude. That's a real problem. I disagree, though, still. Well, I mean, I, uh, grieving what is a very personal thing. And Oh, oh yes, it is. And once you On the other someone, hand, like, when I lost my grandmother and then my grandfather, like, I, the things we owe the dead, like, they take precedent over so much else. Yes, we should definitely go and destroy a supercomputer in every dead person's I would destroy honor. a supercomputer for my grandfather or my grandmother, okay? You would for their dead body, not even their live personage? Yes, I would, if that's what I felt I owed them. Like, if I that's don't what think I felt you like... owe anyone a sacrifice supercomputer. <laughs> Listen, buddy. <laughs> Did we just come up with the title of this episode? <laughs> I mean, I... I, I Anyway, they mess I, it all I up. Respected, and... <laughs> I respect the desire to honor the dead um, and to to provide succor and comfort in a trying time. I don't... He's a sweet boy at heart. Who's, who, who wants to sleep with his cousin or niece or something? Listen, there's nothing wrong with why... No, I don't know. I don't have any cousins, like I just said, so... <laughs> um suffice it to say cousins to sleep with do you have any cousins to sleep with they're all men Um, so well that doesn't preclude it i don't it doesn't preclude it but i have no desire to got it um so i will say simply that um i found that scene to be frustrating i thought it was a a quirky part of the film i thought it was a funny part of the film but i was also mad about it well if you were mad about it he got hit in the face by kazuma who was really mad about it well deservedly so again <laughs> yeah well again because king kazuma is is handed his defeat <laughs> yeah i mean he did nothing but try and help out in every instance yes and would have been successful but for his own family thwarting him in every instance yes and and it, before i discuss the hanafuda game i just want to say that like because um, kenji kenji shows like the most bravery because he speaks up at a time when I would not be able to speak. <laughs> um, someone in the family has died, and he not has, just someone he, like the 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 core of the family, the good, the yes, the the um, headliner of the family, if you will. The headliner, perfect, right? She's died, and he has absolutely no right to speak at that moment. Uh, The women are trying to, as you said, turn what was supposed to be a celebration of her longevity and her life into a celebration of her death and a mourning, like a funeral. Um, So they're they're thinking practical, but the men are hot-blooded and they're like, we have to get revenge. Let's take out this AI. Let's take out Love Machine. And like, it's okay for the dunderheaded, loudish, like, Monske or one of them to claim that, right? But Kenji, like, Kenji just stands up and, and says he agrees. And he has absolutely no right to. 
And that's like the bravest thing that happens in this movie, honestly. Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, what else um, would you say is brave? I mean, there are other brave things that happen. Well, I'm trying to think to of other able to brave speak moments. Out at that moment. Like, first of all, you have to the the sort of cringe comedy element. Like, you have to be brave to stick around in the face of like an obvious lie that you're going to have to promote on the face of it. Right, um, and his he is a, he is a very strong character actually. He appears to be very shy and ineffectual like the others, but when he gets arrested, he's not thinking of himself. He's he goes back and like thanks the grandmother for for having him and gives this speech about how important it is to him to be part of this family even for the short time and experience that because his own family is very busy and doesn't make time for him in that way. He mostly spends his days alone. So, like, he is a, he has a strong character. And the grandmother even says it. She says she sees, she sees who he is. Like, she even knew from the moment she met him or soon after that he was not who Natsuki said he was. Yeah. But I think she saw she saw that he was both more and not what what he's what she said he was exactly. And then the game of Hanafuda happens, and this is also sort of a callback to like the idea that uh, we're not a callback. This is also sort of reminiscent of the way in which the grandmother would rally people to not only her cause, but to, to, to inspire them. Right. Because she's playing Hanafuda and her backup, the ones that she's betting are her family. And I don't know if I made it clear, but during the sequences where they were trying to trap love machine, her family all like became avatars and, they entered the game with their cute little avatars that were sort of like nods to who they are in the real world. So like the firefighters have like firefighty looking like little animals and stuff like that. And, and, uh, and symbols. And then when she goes against him, she bets them all. So like their, their person, their personal information and all of that stuff, their accounts are all on the line. Is even though things start going well for Natsuki in her high-stakes game of Hanafuda against Love Machine, at one point she gets distracted, and then once again, he somehow, she misses the Koi Koi, which is the, like, two fish cards that somehow signify winning the game, I don't know. But she misses it, the opportunity to call that, and... It, it goes to the, the points go to love machine. And at that point she's bet so many that she doesn't have enough characters to bet even the minimum. And then out of the woodwork come all these people from different languages. And they, they sort of set us up at the beginning of the film telling us that like love machine was a universal translator. You could type in any language and it would go into any other language. Not that I believe in that, but um, so you don't, you don't want to, a Tower of Babel sort of. Oh my God, that's exactly uh, what I wrote in the notes here. So, I, I one quibble I have with you is it's not clear that Natsuki made a misplay. 
because I don't think it's a game you can dominate. Um, I, I'm not saying it's a game of chance either, but she wins repeatedly over and over again. It seems like at some point along the way, she was likely to lose. And in fact, if you are going to play a repeated game of this nature that has, you know, a certain chance of you yeah. losing, you're, you're better off playing one substantive hand. And, you know, and that's in fact what happens after this particular incident where she goes down to 74, um, 74 accounts left is that everybody tops her up and then she, you know, it's all, it all goes in for a big bet, but that's exactly what you should do. Um, you should bet it all in, and if you win, then you walk away, but otherwise you're just going to get nickel and dimed out. Well, I'm speaking about casino games where the odds are not in your favor. Since you and I don't know enough about Koi Koi, it's really hard to say, Is did she mess up? Or did she, um, or is it just the fact that, you know, sometimes luck favors another player at some point? Well, I don't know what the English performance was like, but the Japanese suggested pretty, pretty strongly, I thought, that, that she missed something. And she panics after that because of her miss or whatever. She had Koi Koi, and because she didn't call it, ah. it goes to Love Machine, who then calls his move. Um, I don't know. I don't know much. Of, I wish I had done more. I promised myself I would do more studying on Hanafuda, and I did not. <laughs> but I did... I did do a lot of research into the other aspects of the film, so I guess it kind of balances out. I like that we finally get her avatar, which is a fox girl um, in a priestess costume, which I thought was kind of neat. Uh, I don't know if she's necessarily a fox or if she's some kind of dog, but she's definitely in a canine sort of family, and she's a little more mature looking than the sort of cutesy ones that we've seen. And once she has all of these people donating their accounts to her fight, and she has rallied them and inspired them. She has a magical girl transformation where she becomes prettier, I guess. Well, actually, her robe falls away and she's granted a new special item by the Guardians. And uh, frankly, that bit was very unclear to me. And I was watching with my family. And my oldest son said, why is she naked? Which is what was happening while the transformation happened, and I was kind of like, oh, I don't know. I well, did you ever get... see, well, remember we were talking about this in the Sarazamai show, but Sarazamai show, but um, in Sailor Moon, she gets naked before she puts on her like special costume. Well, but that's because people take off clothes and put them on. But again, why that needed to happen here um, is unclear. Yeah, and I I won't go into Sailor Moon, um, but I think it was be... just a magical girl type of transformation. I don't know. Somehow, when girls undergo magical transformations, a lot of them seem to lose their clothes in the process. I, I it's a mystery. Why. It's a, this movie it's is fairly mystery. like PG though, so it is in fact PG. There you go. There's one um, use of banned language where bullshit is is said, and that was pretty much it. Oh, my daughter doesn't even flinch at those kinds of words. We watch One Piece together, so. Yeah, my son is desperate to watch it, and I have forbidden it specifically because I've I've said to him under no uncertain terms that I'm not thrilled with the language. That and all the the um, 
the panty viewing by one of the members of the oh yeah it gets it gets bad (laughs) um but let's not talk about that let's talk about sort of like where we end up here because i mean as we said the stakes are no are so super duper high that they're kind of dumb and the hanafuda game succeeds insofar as natsuki is able to get the ai down to just two accounts and then it looks like the AI is going to like turn the like proverbial key and usher in like nuclear holocaust. Yeah, I thought that was significantly upping the stakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't happen because finally King Kazuma, who we find out um that Kazuma himself was bullied before his grandfather taught him some kind of kempo that kept him that gave him sort of a an edge and a center and gave him confidence and he gets it back finally in the big moment where king kazuma punches the crap out of the out of the ai and then uh and then that's it that's the end of the movie yeah i i mean well Yes, but let's not. I kind it of, is I and kind it's of not. Did, you you glossed did. over the uh, the meteor, not the meteor, but the the satellite um, coming down. Um, right, and right. I thought that was in fact something we should dwell on a little bit because um, this. I actually fast forwarded through this on my rewatch because I found it so dull. <laughs> which but bit? Just just the the race against time. I, I found it to be a little. It was very, it was stressful. It was intended to be stressful, but it was also like a little too much, I felt. Exactly. But I, you know, I couldn't quite tell what we're supposed to make of Kenji's, um, you know, sort of math evolution where it took him all night to break the code the first time. And then he's breaking it increasingly quickly, eventually to the point where he's able to do it all in his head um, in order to change the path of this incoming satellite. Um and that, of course, is no mean feat. And of course, and I believe it's also supposed to represent the strength of his character. Like when the chips are down, he is he is reliable. He is there fighting the good fight. And so you're supposed to garner, you know, a great deal of respect for him. And presumably the whole family does because he's the only thing that keeps them all alive. Um, but I also was kind of frustrated by that point because I don't. I don't think encryption works that way that a person can look at it and apply some formulas and break a code. Maybe it's something like that. Um, but I, I, I didn't think that was quite how it worked. Um, and second, just, you know, where, where does this, he's already proven himself as a, as a reliable character. He's already proven his worth. He doesn't have to be superhuman. Um, and I felt that that was actually a bit of, a bit of unnecessary embellishment, um, or, um, just gilding the lily doing too much to to represent the character as being a heroic type we we didn't need that they were already he'd already here he'd already helped organize the whole thing he's integral to he didn't need his own moment in the sun it was, it was my feeling yeah because he i think he he did his part I th- that's what i was saying like earlier when we were discussing it is that i just felt like too many people got that like shine moment where the spotlight fell on them and they got to like step up and it wasn't it wasn't necessary to have it have it carried out as far as it went and then the satellite 
thing, whatever that is. Is it a plane? I, is it a satellite? I don't know. I, I didn't think that it was... I should say... I didn't feel like too many people got their moment in the sun the way that, that you do. But I felt like this was this was an it's element that we didn't need. It's just an extended ending that just keeps going. And to me, that took yes, away some I agree of the with that. It just took, there were so many different times we seemed to have defeated this thing. And here we go again. Um, right. The, but there's I, too many climaxes in a row. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. There, what was the other thing? I actually had a big question for you. What does the boat do for this uh plan i that was it a generator is I mean, that the i point? think so but i think it, it was also filled to... with ice i i very convenient and weird how did yeah, this he he just has a boat yeah, i it's got to be like a generator the boat has got to provide power because otherwise you're not going to have power like that thing really got to me I didn't, they, they bring this boat in, they toss it into the koi pond, they turn on the lights on the boat, and voila, boat. <laughs> now what, my friends? Uh, we are not sailing uh, anywhere. I'm sure someone will fill us in in the, in the comments on this one. <laughs> like, I well, hope actually, so. Actually, the boat is... I mean, I'm, sure, I'm happy to I'm know. I'm 100% sure they tell us, but I, I'm 100% sure I don't care. Yeah, I it, I don't know. It's a boat. I don't know. Um, I wish I had an answer for you, but I don't. What else do we need to discuss here? I the, I, the, I, the satellite tears like tears down the front wall of the place. It, well, it yeah. I mean the ex- the explosion is pretty significant, and um, I had a question for you: Is does Wabiske still have all the money? Does the U.S. government still have this contract? Because if so, then fine. He's going to come in and he'll pay for all the repairs. (laughs) But otherwise, this family is screwed, my friend. Yeah, but I like the fact that, and I guess I never said this, but in the face of apocalypse, they take the grandmother's advice and they just sit down to dinner. (laughs) True. And they, they just break bread. It's it's a very nice scene. It, in fact, give me give me that and like one of the many climaxes, and I'm happy. Um, I did like that Wabiske comes roaring back into the story, you know, crashing his car and whatnot in a very dramatic fashion. Again, again, again. Why do we need to crash the car? I understand the need to get there quickly, but once you've passed through the gates. I felt like you could have decelerated. <laughs> yeah, probably. Probably. I don't know. I've never tried to, like, run a car up to a place, like, super quickly and stop very quickly. I mean, I, I I take in my mind a feeling of, like, I've always wondered, like, you could play off dark humor where, okay, so we have the, the hero running in. What if the hero runs in and then just kills himself because he was recklessly driving and then you've got to move the plot to somewhere else? Like, that was what crossed my mind at that particular point. Like, <laughs> what if he just flipped the car and died? Yes, what, true. what good did that have done? Okay, so um, the end of the movie. The end of the movie, the, the reconciliation. It's interesting that they end with all the people coming to pay respects to... Yeah, that's very nice. Um, ...to Granny... And we have the culmination of the relationship where they are, um, um, Kenji and um, and Natsuke are going to date, I guess, under the 
the intense laser-like pressure of of the family. Yeah, I like that um, this is also a bookend to sort of the way that they were behaving at the beginning of the film. Uh, now he's now they're they're rooting for Kenji, like they're squarely on his side. Uh, he has proven his worth. Yeah. He's proven that he's worthy of... Not only has he proven his worth... Takeda. But he also was not... Um, he was not to blame, which they they make clear in a sequence I didn't fully understand, but, like, he had he had mis, misdone his code. Was that what had happened? Yeah, like, he missed by He'd broken the code, but he messed it up, and as a consequence, like, everybody's system got hacked, but it could... If they had relied just on him, it wouldn't have done any good. Right, because there were 55 other people who sent in the code and were dumb like him. Yes. That's what I got from the, the from what I watched. Um, and they kiss. Of course, it's dumb anime kiss. It's like Kenji is... And with the, I mean, with the nosebleed, I had to explain to my children that <laughs> nosebleeds in the Japanese culture were indicative of like... Over, over Wait, like did you say arousal six... to your children? <laughs> yeah, I did. I am very upfront with my children about some of this stuff. That's cool. Like, that's cool. That's well, because cool. like otherwise, it makes no sense at all. And I'm like, oh, I don't. I mean, you can't really explain this any other I way. Mean, this is what it is. There is a point in One Piece where Sanji, the the character, becomes so aroused after living on an island of only men who dress as women or who identify as women. And then when he comes out of it, he's so hard up for women that he gets these massive nosebleeds that threaten his Just, life. Yes, he can't even speak to uh, and directly observe attractive women because of the the intense nasal pressure. <laughs> it is, it is, it is so. It was so difficult to like, like we already knew that nosebleeds happen because of like interest in the opposite sex, but to suddenly have it like become like life-threatening was definitely an interesting conversation that happened between me and my nine-year-old daughter i i don't even know how you can (laughs) and here here the thing is like it doesn't actually happen so i find it very comical that i need to explain to my kids like oh yeah so in japanese culturally reference the nosebleed not as trauma to the head as much as like you can't really explain it because it doesn't like that doesn't happen naturally if i were to explain it to someone who wasn't nine-year-olds i would call it a visual shorthand a visual shorthand for arrive arousal that also doubles as a gag um here we get that and there hasn't been a lot of dumb anime visual moments in the movie but this is one of the dumbest this is up there yeah i actually thought it was very charming the the embarrassment phase when people turned red i actually liked that because they didn't spend too much time on it it was only used like twice i think yeah and and now we get to talk about their relationship because at the end he says he loves he likes her a lot and uh they they are they're very much pushing for him to actually be her her husband uh at least in their you know they definitely are meddlesome the women of the of the family i could see that they're they're playing a bit at the same time as they're serious like it's hard to tell whether they actually um are pushing for these outcomes or if they're just enjoying sort of being part of that story but here we get to examine 
now where we look back and say, was this really a story about Kenji and and Natsuki falling in love? Because it's not really there. <laughs> well, he's there no, for they her. don't see he's this is reliable. why we talked about it in the beginning. It's the Robocop paradox here where the the love story is not on its own enough plot development for them to truly have fallen in love. But they've fallen far enough um, into like, you know, they've fallen far enough for the establishment of a good relationship, which I think is all the movie was searching for. And I think that's plenty for what we have here. Yeah, um, I so agree with that. I thought they did a good job there. I really I, I was comfortable with it. But when you try and extract it out of the the story related to the, the cyber thriller I think you you cheapen it because the two parts meld together very nicely and it becomes a complete movie that way. Yeah, I would agree with that. Although, you know, RoboCop, I found out that like, but what sometimes you don't understand the strengths of a movie that you think is flawed in some small way. Like if you were looking at the romance aspect of RoboCop and finding it wanting, um, you look at a movie like that and then you see someone else approach the same material like they did with the reboot. And in the reboot of RoboCop, they spent a lot more time establishing him as a family man. Like, it wasn't just like these like weird, iconic Americana images that he was attached to. They actually like spend lots of time with him connecting with his son and doing these other things. Um... And, and that was wrong. And the that wife. was the wrong stylistic no. choice. Well, it was the wrong stylistic choice because it takes away from being RoboCop. <laughs> I, I want to be clear here that, again, I am simply using RoboCop Listen, as a shorthand RoboCop for is melding of two movie. elements. No, I know. I, I made a bad decision to bring RoboCop into the discussion, and I regret it. Um, yeah, I, I, I like this movie. I think it's a good movie for families. Uh, two thumbs up from the... Uh, it's not a review. It's not a review. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're right well one of these days we're going to come across something that i demonstrably hate and i can't wait to savage it um with with bared fangs yeah i think that'll be a fun moment where like possibly you and i end up on opposite sides of something but i am cultivating these choices to things that won't be horrible for us at least and because i i pre-screen everything so no it's okay it's okay if you i mean i I assume you're not going to pick something that's demonstrably bad. No, um, certainly You not. could just pick something that has artistic merit that is nevertheless unlikable. I can think of lots of movies that I've seen like that at Sundance. So thank you guys for listening today. This was really fun for us. We're going to continue this intermission um, with next week's movie or movies. We're going to be covering Your Name and... Tenki no Ko, Weathering with You. Those are both Makoto Shinkai movies. Don has not seen either of them, so it's going to be really interesting to get his take on what I think is is a mixed style. Again, here you had something that was like two different things being sort of put together. And I think you get that again a little bit with uh, Makoto Shinkai's movies. So I'm, gonna, I'm interested to see what you think. Me too. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want to support us, you can uh, go to patreon.com slash the Orange Groves. The Orange Groves is a podcast network that supports marginalized voices and unique or niche podcasts. They're super great. 
and um, they helped pay for our artwork, which we just absolutely love, which was done by Rain, who is known as Small Small Witch on Twitter. Uh, you can also go and buy us a coffee. That means go to ko-fi.com slash O-K-A-S-H-I-N-A podcast. Um, and you can throw us like two or three bucks and we will put that towards supplemental materials or um, the anime subscriptions that we keep so that everything we do on this show is legitimate and supported by actual and, su- and supports the community and helps bring more anime over in the long run. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter. We have a handle. It's Okashina Podcast. Same spelling as before. Uh, we are constantly on there talking about um new releases that we're doing or uh, i i like to make bad memes uh and hopefully as we get more people we're starting to get more followers um we'll be getting more interaction with those and you guys can send us your own bad memes based on the anime that we're doing and speaking of anime that we're doing um next week you'll you can join us for uh your name and weathering with you i am sabrina ray don Take us out. I'm Don Munson. Okashku. <laughs> Okashku ikoyo. Ikoyo. <laughs> that was right, right? I'm supposed to echo you? <laughs> yes, that was perfect. Cut, oh, print. <laughs> That's a wrap, folks. Bye.